In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I beg your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. In the Gospel of the fourth Sunday of Advent this year, we read the account of the Annunciation, which is written by St. Luke. How many times have we contemplated on this beautiful passage of the coming of our Lord into the world in the womb of Mary? Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And when the angel had come to her, he said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Immediately these words reveal a listening heart, a listening heart of Mary, steeped in contemplation. She is a virgin. She is pure. She is the representative of Israel that remains faithful. She is the remnant of Israel. And she is the one ready to hear the word of God and put it into practice and thereby become the mother of God as our Lord would say later on commending her attitude well in this advent we have to adopt the same kind of contemplative listening of Our Lady to be able to listen to the whisper of God that comes to us, who is very, he's not loud, he's very subtle sometimes, what the will of God is for us. But it's clear. It's loud and clear if we have a listening heart, if we open up our heart. The Annunciation of Jesus to Mary actually stands in contrast with another Annunciation also in St. Luke. If you recall just a few verses earlier, the angel Gabriel had come to St. Zachary. He was a priest in the temple and he offered incense and the, and the angel Gabriel appeared to him, telling him that his prayer had been answered. He wasn't expecting that. He was frightened. And as we know, the angel told him that he had been blessed because he was going to have another child or have a child, the first child. 
with his wife Elizabeth, who was barren and advanced in years. Something impossible was now made possible by the power of God. But Zachary said something that the angel Gabriel did not like at all. He kind of lacks faith. And he said, How do I know that this will happen? How could this be? He was kind of calling into question the, the words of the angel. That's not something we want to do. We don't want to mess with Gabriel. He'll shut us up for nine months, as he did with Zachary. But Mary actually asks a very similar question. When the angel comes to her and announces the fact that she is going to be the mother of God, that she will conceive in her womb and bring forth a son and would call him Jesus, and how he would be great and shall be called Son of the Most High. Mary asks a question, a very similar question. How shall this happen since I do not know man? There's a big difference between the question asked by Zachary and the question asked by Mary. The question asked by Zachary was, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. In other words, how, why should I trust you, Angel Gabriel? I mean, after seeing this extraordinary sign of the apparition of this angel, I don't know how he would doubt the word of the angel. In fact, it was kind of irrational to doubt. But Mary's question is not a question calling into doubt what the angel had just announced to her. It's actually very different. Her question is a question of means. What means can I put into practice in order for this to happen? In other words, it's almost as if Mary had already said yes, but she doesn't know how to do it. It's a question of how, not of if. And that's why her question is revealing of a listening heart and a purity of heart, which is the attitude that we want to have during Advent as we approach the birth of our Lord. We need to prepare a place for Him within our hearts. We need to prepare our hearts. Advent is kind of a, a night of darkness in the world, but it's not complete darkness. There are certain lights that actually guide our way. This is, uh, we can only imagine that during Advent, um, right before the birth of our Lord, the Magi were already coming, were already on their way to see our Lord, and they were guided at night by a star. 
they found that star through their effort and through their study and through their faith. In our lives, we have those stars that kind of guide our feet in the way of peace, as St. Zachary said about John the Baptist. And precisely one of those lights that we have this Advent and every Advent is John the Baptist, figures of John the Baptist actually in our lives who guide our feet in the way of peace. Who are these people? They are people who call us to conversion, that our Lord somehow sends to call us to purification, to prepare the way of the Lord, to be that voice crying out in the desert, to give witness, to bear witness of the light that Jesus is. We have many stars in this dark night of ours that we live in. It could be a mother or father, a grandparent who left us an example of great piety. And perhaps we dismissed the piety of that loved one, you know, as something of, you know, of ancient times, of medieval times, that was kind of something she did or he did that no longer applies in our modern world. But now that maybe they're not here, they're not no longer with us, we have this great memory of how they were somehow at peace and happy, even if they also suffered through many tribulations and we saw tears in their eyes many times. There were people who reacted supernaturally and guided as it were, the people around them, and now through their example, they guide us on the way of peace. They are kind of little stars that guide our way. Could be a friend who gives us the right advice at the right moment, even though they don't have all the answers to everything, but they listen to us and they, they give us you know little bits of advice, but we somehow discern that that piece of advice is, is the voice of the Holy Spirit. Of course, we will only be able to do that if we have a certain degree of contemplative attitude, listening attitude to the Word of God, wherever it could be found. Sometimes it is found in these stars around us. And they're all around us. God sends us, all these people around us, to, to help us discover the way, to prepare the way of the Lord, to convert to purify ourselves. The one danger we run into, not only during Advent, but always, because we are in a certain kind of Advent, awaiting for the second coming of our Lord. Our entire lives are an Advent, as it were. The danger we run into is to become like the Pharisees, who are too concerned about their status. They are people without hope, and as St. Thomas Aquinas says, no one can live without hope. So they will find cheap substitutes somewhere else. And so we see that attitude actually creep in into the Pharisees. That since they don't have a supernatural hope, they place their hope in something human. Something that actually runs out. Runs out of gas, so to speak. They move at the plane of the apparent, of appearance, not at the plane of truth. There are 
we have to basically distinguish these two planes all the time because we are bombarded with the same temptations that they are. And in fact, this is why their souls are in darkness because they move at the plane of appearance. They only care about the superficial, what is what appears to be good, what appears to be true, what appears to others. And that's where they place their hope. They place their hope in this kind of um, in superficial opinion or honor that people can give them, the good opinion of others. That's what they rely on. And that's why our Lord denounces their, their hypocrisy by bringing the plane of truth to their face, you know, kind of uh, uh, unveiling what is really going on. They lengthen their phylacteries, he says, because they just want to be known and held in high esteem by everyone as holy. They're kind of the officially holy people because they are. They belong to this priestly class or this kind of holy class of people. You know, Just because of their dress, they somehow think that they're going to be holy or their status in society or something like that. They want to be called rabbi in, you know, in public and they want to be honored. They let everyone know that they're fasting. They, they kind of, you know, they, um, they make a droopy kind of expression in their face so that everyone can see, oh, they're, they're, so, they're so mortified, they're so sacrificial. But all these things are for naught. They are useless. They're vain because they are done without humility. They're done without the right intention. They may be apparently the straight and narrow path that our Lord speaks of, but they are really self-righteous. They don't need a savior because they save themselves with all the externals that they perform. And they're kind of happy, they're content with that. But of course, all those things will run out. All those things that they do will not give them any deep hope or deep joy. And they simply kind of just lie to themselves continuously. They move at the plane of appearance. John the Baptist is quite different. He is actually uncovering all those layers that people kind of use to cover their sins or their hypocrisy. And he, he is that little star that shines a path that is a path of conversion, of truth. You know, admit the truth. That's why at the Jordan River they were confessing their sins and trying to approach our Lord in truth. This is, this is the condition that our Lord places in order to be able to meet him, meet him in the truth. And that's how the, the nighttime that we are living through, the time of darkness, will actually be a time of light. People who admit the truth are not afraid of their actions, that their actions may be known by others. That's that's fine. It's people who are 
who are mischievous, who have a double intention, who simply want their own glory, those are the people that are afraid to be uncovered, to be discovered by those lights that we have around us. They, they can't stand light in their conscience. And they, they continuously fall into ignoring those, um, those people that God sends by our side to, to help us convert. St. Josemaria was a man who lived this drama of advent, of expectation, of conversion, of purification, let's call it, of truth. Every single day, he realized that every day, our Lord came at Mass, in his hands, actually, as a priest. And every day, he had an opportunity during the nighttime, as he went to bed, to actually prepare for Mass the following day that he would celebrate in the morning. And that nighttime was like a time of, of um, expectation, of purification, of contemplation, of silence, to listen to the call of God, the little calls of God, and to really foster a desire to receive our Lord. He lived what he called the nighttime of silence. That was something he coined. He coined this phrase and maybe even the concept in, um, uh, in modern spirituality, I think. And he really, after the examination of conscience, at night when he would kind of meet our Lord in truth, where the truth was, make an act of contrition and and be, you know make a resolution for the next day he would not talk he would want to get into the mass and if people would kind of want to uh, approach him for whatever reason he would he would be he would whisper or he would you know speak the minimum because he was getting into the mass the next day he would actually maybe even read in the missal what, what the readings of the Mass were the following day and try to munch on those words, maybe an antiphon or a word that would strike him from the first reading or the psalm or the gospel or whatever. And he would try to repeat that many times so that he could prepare and already savor the gifts that our Lord would give him the following day at Mass. And then as he went to bed, he would say many aspirations, many acts of love. And if he woke up in the middle of the night, as he did often towards the end of his life because he couldn't sleep, he would pray a little prayer that he learned when he was a little child before making his first communion. And that is the prayer of the spiritual communion, which goes like this. I wish my Lord to receive you with the purity, humility, and devotion with which your Most Holy Mother received you, with the spirit and the fervor of the saints. A very holy priest taught him that prayer, and we want to repeat that prayer right now in front of our Lord, because we want to prepare in the same way for our Lord's coming. I wish my Lord 
to receive you with the purity, humility, and devotion with which your Most Holy Mother received you. If you think about that prayer, it is really a beautiful way to prepare for either Mass the following day or for Christmas, this Advent. We, can, we have this great little prayer that shows us many characteristics of what people in love do. They want to, like Mary, receive our Lord with purity, with humility, and with devotion, with love, with piety. St. Maria would repeat this prayer many, many, many times, maybe over a hundred times, or two hundred times, three hundred times. Sometimes he even said that he, he had said eight, over eight hundred aspirations before breakfast, you know, one time. However many, it's not about counting, it's not about the number, it's about how much love we put into it, how much we really foster a desire to receive our Lord with these three characteristics, purity, humility, and devotion of Mary and of all the saints. Saint Jose Maria told this practice, told of this practice to someone in the Curia one time, and and they told him that it was impossible for him to pray at night because he's not conscious, or it's impossible for anyone to pray at night, and and um, he realized that you know people in love even when they sleep they pray. And he was very happy to actually have confirmed in sacred scripture that there was precisely this same idea in Song of Solomon. You can check it out in chapter 5, verse 2, where it says, I slept, but my heart was awake when I heard my lover knocking and calling, open to me, my treasure, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. This is precisely what happens to people in love. It, happens, it will happen to you and to me if we truly desire to receive our Lord. We will, we will be asleep, but never truly with our heart asleep, always awake always awake. Lord, we want to receive you always with a clean heart. We always want to be vigilant and be able to know what the obstacles are in our soul so that nothing ever gets in the way between you and me. Help us identify those money changers in our in the temple of our body, in the temple of our soul where you live, so that we can come like like you did in the house of your father in Jerusalem and kick all those people out, all those you know uh, donkeys and oxes and doves and every, all the money changers, because the temple of my person of my heart cannot become a den of thieves. It has to be a house of prayer. And that's what I want to do this Advent. I want to prepare and purify, convert at the bottom of my heart. 
from the bottom of my heart so that you can come in and give me all your graces. And for this, I want to remain awake. My heart, Lord, keep it awake. Here's a Shakespeare sonnet, Sonnet 27, which actually expresses a this idea in a very beautiful way. The fact that we really don't don't ever fall asleep if we if we are in love. Look at what Shakespeare writes. Weary with toil, I haste me to my bed, the dear repose for limbs with travel tired. But then begins a journey in my head to work my mind when body's works expired. For then my thoughts from far where I abide intend a zealous pilgrimage to thee and keep my drooping eyelids open wide looking on darkness which the blind do see. Save that my soul's imaginary sight presents thy shadow to my sightless view which like a jewel hung in ghastly night makes black night beauteous and her old face new. Lo, thus by day my limbs, by night my mind, for thee and for myself no quiet find. Here's a person in love who is going to bed and he's tired. And then he says, you know, when, when he's in bed, a journey begins in his head. And it works his mind, even though, you know, the body is... Is, is tired and expired and and then his thoughts from far where I abide intend a zealous pilgrimage to to thee my loved one and and this pilgrimage or this thought of my loved one keeps the eyes the eyelids open wide the drooping eyelids open wide and he stares at the at the darkness but it's no longer dark because he sees in those shadows, his loved one. This is beautiful, like a jewel, like those stars that guide our nighttime. And the couplet at the end, he says, you know, by day, my limbs, by night, my mind. For thee, for my loved one, for myself, no quiet find. My love keeps me awake, whether by day or by night, when I work or when I'm asleep. It doesn't matter. I am in love with our Lord all the time. And that's why I can pray all the time, because love is not incompatible with any other activity. I can work and still be have presence of God. I can, I can play. I can, I can watch a movie. I can spend time with friends, spend time with family. Never be distracted from my true love. This is the vigilance that our Lord is asking of us all the time, but especially in Advent, especially before Mass, every night. We can, re we can prepare to receive our Lord the next day, especially if we go to Mass every day. But, you know, if you don't, if you go once a week, well, the night before, really live the intensity that that St. Josemaria is suggesting here that he left kind of sculpted with his life, with his example. That's what people in love do. They live the spiritual communion. In fact, that's what our Lord did. Our Lord lived. You, Lord, lived the spiritual communion. In your case, it was not you wanting to receive 
yourself. That wouldn't make any sense. You you didn't pray. I wish my Lord to receive you. You wanted to receive us. It was kind of the complimentary version of the spiritual communion. You wanted to be with us. How do we know that? Well, you say it yourself through the mouth of St. Luke, through the pen of St. Luke, right before the Last Supper when you wanted to uh, prepare everything for the Last Supper. You said to the apostles, with great desire have I desired to have this Passover with you. I, we can only imagine the night before how our Lord was preparing for that great moment when he was going to give himself to the apostles. It really is a, 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 an amazing, an amazing thing. We have to turn to Mary because we we have such few merits of our own, if if any. We have to ask her to help us prepare for our Lord as she prepared to receive him. We can only imagine also St. Joseph, how he may have built a crib, which he had to abandon because they had to go to Bethlehem uh, or prepared a room or something like that. But it didn't matter. What mattered was their heart. Where was their heart? Their heart was with our Lord. They had this listening attitude. If you think right now visually of um, the Pietà, sculpted by Michelangelo, it's a beautiful image that we can think of to really um, put some flesh, so to speak, on the spiritual communion. Because Michelangelo um, sculpted the Pietà, making Our Lady shine out with these three attributes of the spiritual communion, and with purity, humility, and devotion, in the following way. He made her like a 14-year-old. She's not a 45-year-old in that, in that sculpture. She is 14. Why? Because he thought those people who keep their commitments and who, who are pure throughout their lives, they remain young. And that's why Our Lady in, in the Pietà is sculpted as a 14-year-old when she heard the call of, of God, when she said yes to our Lord. Because she never aged from that moment on in her heart, figuratively, because she was pure. At the Annunciation, that's you know, the culminating moment of, of her life when God came into her and never left her. Well, purity. Purity of remaining young. And we can rejuvenate ourselves with the sacrament of penance. Humility. Michelangelo knew that in the history of art, humility was always uh, depicted with an open hand, you know, open to the will of God. And Our Lady has an open hand in the Pietà, but the other hand is actually closed, closed with holding the body of Our Lord. So, one hand is open to the will of God and the other is the will of God. To have her son dead in, you know, in front of her, that was the will of God for her at that point. Knowing that he was not really dead, but that having gone through a human death, that that was what, what was needed for the redemption of mankind. That takes a lot of humility to accept the will of God 
in tragedy, in, 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 you know, in the cross, in things that we could say, well, I don't, I don't know if God loves me or I don't know if he exists anymore. No, that is the will of God right there. My ordinary life right there. I don't need to go further. I don't need to, to make anything up. But I need humility in order to recognize that. And I need to be silent and silent humility to hear the whisper of God. And finally, devotion. Michelangelo also knew that Mary, in the history of art, had been depicted in two extreme ways. Either like, a, I don't know, somebody in ecstasy, almost with a smile, uncanny smile, because she was happy that the redemption had been accomplished. It's kind of very strange way of depicting Mary, because it was inhuman, really. It's, it's almost been ecstatic, but um, with good intentions. But the other extreme in the history of art is sometimes that Mary is totally um, unconsoled and crying and bawling because she she sees the reality of her dead son right in front of her and and he said you know that's it was neither extreme she was neither extremely happy to the point that she had a smile on her face nor extremely sad that no one could console her. She was somewhere in the middle. She was contemplating. She was looking. And that's how she is sculpted in the Pietà. She has a supernatural outlook. She's both happy and sad. But she is contemplating with piety, with devotion, accepting the will of God, not in rebellion, but there just looking and thinking and loving. That's what we can do. We can have this silent attitude that Mary had, this pure attitude, this humble attitude, so that we too can receive our Lord like she did. Let us ask her for this special grace. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord. My guardian angel, intercede for me.